0: Let's ask the Lord to have incredible mercy on us right now as he wants to, to help us to fix our gaze on him now. Lord, thank you for the gift of humor, even if I'm just the only one who enjoyed it over the last few moments. But uh, I, just, I do thank you for the freedom to laugh. Um, and I pray now, God, that we would, we would be able to have a deeper joy in your word through looking at you through your word. God, I'm, I'm in faith and expecting you uh, because you've given us... Um, Wonderful signs, in a sense, that your word needs to be uplifted today. And I pray, God, that all that you want to do through your word would please have its effect. God, I am longing personally for what you're saying in this message to pierce my heart more deeply and more lastingly than it ever has before. I am longing for this truth to transform my heart more fully and more deeply into the image of your son. I pray that for everyone gathered today, Lord, as we prayed earlier, Lord God, would you in your mercy work powerfully through your word? Would you have mercy on me, your unworthy servant, to protect your people from any error in my preaching? And that if there's anything good you want to do through my preaching, which Lord, I trust you are because you're kind and you use broken vessels, would you please work mightily through the preaching of your word this morning? Would you, God, lift us up, build us up, cleanse us through the preaching of your word? We look to you in the name of Jesus Christ, our only hope. In his name we pray, amen. Colossians 2, verses 13 and 14. And you who were dead in your trespasses and in the uncircumcision of your flesh God made alive together with him having forgiven us all our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal Demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. This is the word of the Lord. This passage this morning is going to tell us at least three things that will, Lord willing, Help us cherish our taking of the Lord's Supper this morning. Three things. Who we were before we met Jesus Christ. What God did about that through Jesus Christ. And who we are now through the saving work of Jesus Christ. It's going to tell us who we were, what God did about that, and who we are now. Because of what God did about that. And listen, as you hear these truths, I want to prepare you that you will hear some very hard and unflattering things this morning. Truths about our predicament before Christ and without Christ that are not flattering. But I will be bringing these things to you not to discourage you, but as I hope you will see by the Lord's power, they are meant to help us understand, as Pam tried to speak to us a few minutes about, just how great the love is with which he has loved us. And just how fully and finally he has freed us. So, without further ado, who we were. Verse 13 Paul says who we were, you were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh. The first thing that might surprise you about who you were before Christ and who you would be without Christ is God says you were dead. That might be a hard thing to grapple with. You might think of the, the dead stink bug that's been under your windshield wiper since last May because you can't get to that part of your car very easily. And you think, I'm not like that. Just laying there, drying out. You might think more seriously of a funeral or a wake you've been to where you've seen a deceased person's body. Maybe a loved one or or, or a friend, and and they're lifeless. It barely look like who you remember them being, and 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 they're just in that coffin, immobile, still. And you think, I was not like that before Christ. I could move and talk and think and experience life. I had desires and animation and emotions. So we must know right away the Lord is explaining to us something about what real death is. Something that physical death is only a sign or a symptom of or a consequence of. This is real death. God says, He says, You were dead. And he, and he qualifies it. You were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh. See, He doesn't say you were dead in your physical heartbeat or in your blood pressure, in your brain waves. He's not talking about your physical death. He's talking about your spiritual death. He says you were dead in your trespasses and in the uncircumcision of your flesh. Paul is trying to tell us that we were dead to God. You might think of a movie where some father is dishonored by his son, He does some terrible thing, or maybe he doesn't do some terrible thing. His father is terrible, but the father would say, you're dead to me. He turns his back on him. They have no relationship anymore. And that's getting closer to what Paul is getting at here. You were dead to God. See, when Paul says we were dead in our trespasses, He's not just talking about some violation of moral standards, like some abstract code, like, oh, we broke the the building regulation codes, or we violated the book of moral ethics. No, he's talking about trespasses against someone. These trespasses are personal in the sense that they are trespasses against someone. And that someone, sadly, unfortunately for us, is the only one, who counts in this universe in an ultimate judicial judgment sense? That someone is God. So Paul says, You were dead to God because of your trespasses and your sins, in your trespasses and sins. Remember when David. Maybe you don't remember, but David sins against God. King David sins against God egregiously by committing adultery by Bathsheba. And not just that, he tries to hide it by essentially murdering, premeditatively, murders her husband, Uriah, by sending him to the front lines, unprotected. And then David is convicted of his sin and he says to God, against you and you only have I sinned. David didn't mean, I didn't sin against those two innocent people who cares about them. That's not what he meant. He was zeroing in on something that made his sin even more grave than if he had felt the full weight of Bathsheba and Uriah's victimhood. He's saying, no, I've sinned against God. See, if you're in a classy antique shop in Frederick, and you're right in front of the store owner looking at stuff and you drop an expensive vase from the owner's precious collection of rare mink vases, his own collection. You don't simply see it shatter into 500 pieces and look down and say, oh, I'm ashamed, I ruined that beautiful vase. No, what what do you do? You, if you're normal, you look at the owner (laughs) because it's his vase. You realize what you did to that vase, you did against him. And so David means, thanks, John. And so David means, God, you own Uriah and Bathsheba. They're your creation. You created them for your glory. To sin against them, to sin against anyone, to sin against anything in any way is to offend and despise you. You're the ultimate cause. You're the ultimate sustainer. You're the one for whom all things were made. In that sense, I sinned so completely against you, God, that it's as if you're the only one I sinned against. All people are held by you, owned by you. So you're the ultimate victim here. This wasn't simply a sin against this man and this woman. Even more so, this was a sin against very God himself. And God is offended. And he is offended deeply by our sin. Isaiah 52.9 tells us terrible news. It says, your iniquities, your sins have made a separation between you and God. Your sins have hidden his face from you so that he does not hear. When you see your neighbors in Frederick who need Jesus, and they don't want him, they're not looking for him. That isn't just a function of their hard heart. It's a function that God has separated himself from them. And in a mysterious way, we can't understand. Though he desires thou salvation, he does not hear them. They are dead to him, and he is dead to them. His face, he says, I hide my face from you, and I don't hear you. But it's worse than that. Paul says we're not just dead in our trespasses, but in our very nature, He says, the uncircumcision of our flesh, and when you see flesh, don't think of human body like meat. Think of humanity without God. Think of human being. That's really what this word here is is functioning like. He's saying, without Christ, our very nature, our flesh, is against God and he is against us. It's uncircumcised, Paul says. Uncircumcision is a terrible thing to a Jewish person. It meant that you're unclean, you're unholy, you're not part of God's people, you're violating the covenant. There isn't a a worse thing you could probably say to insult someone. Remember David said, you uncircumcised Philistine. It was a term of derision and despising. So Paul says, you were uncircumcised in your very nature, in your flesh. Your whole heart was unclean. It's not just your actions that are bad. It's the wellspring from which those actions come. You can staple peaches on an apple tree. It's still an apple tree. You can try to reform your life with to-do lists and New Year's resolutions. It's still the same heart. Bad fruit comes From a bad tree, our many sins come from an uncircumcised, unholy, unclean nature. That's what God says about humanity apart from Christ. See, something happened to the human race long ago that we've been suffering with ever since. When our first ancient parents sinned against God, all who would come after them were polluted by that first act of rejection. Let me try to explain. I I was at the beach a few weeks ago. Wave after wave rolled onto the shore. Wave after wave came onto the sand. But it all came from the same ocean. I didn't look at the wave and say, oh, did that come from the Atlantic, or the Indian, or the Pacific? I knew where it came from. It came from the ocean in front of me. Just like every wave that flows onto the beach from that ocean that sent it and is indeed made of that ocean, every one of us were born spiritually flowing from Adam. I don't have to teach my kids to lie and to mock and to be cruel to their siblings. I don't have to teach them to be foolish and waste time and hit each other and have intense jealousy about each other. I mean, it just, they roll from that ocean just as like those waves rolled from the Atlantic. They roll from the ocean of Adam. Every one of us spiritually flows from Adam, made of him. All that we would become was with him and in him that day when he rebelled against God and offended his creator And that relationship that was meant to be holy and loving and full of unity and peace and harmony between Adam and his creator, between Adam and all those who would be born after him, it was shattered. It was severed that day. That's why even though Adam didn't fall down and die in front of the tree, God said in the day you eat of it, you will die because he did die spiritually. He became dead to God. And all those after him, all the waves flowing out of that ocean of Adam would be dead to God. No longer his children. No longer God our Father. No longer his people. And we no longer having him as our God. No longer at peace with God. Nor he at peace with us. Some of you might remember this song called Get, Get Together in the 70s. If you're old like me, you know. Or if you, maybe, do you know it, John? Have you heard it in your truck when you're driving? It's, it's like, it's one of these just peace and love songs. Come on, people now, smile on your brother. Everybody get together. We gonna love one another right now. Please raise your hand. I promise you that it's a real song. Yes, look at all those hands. Some of you young people are laughing at me, but there were hands raised just now. It's a real song, and it, it presents this picture that we're this great human family, this common brotherhood, this family together. It's not true. We're no longer at peace with him, and he's no longer at peace with us after sin, after that garden experience. We experience spiritual death now. We, 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 we don't naturally want to live with God, believe in him, trust him, follow him, and relate to him. And, and our spiritual death now, it is a foretaste. Of the physical death that's coming in this life, and then afterwards, an eternity of separation, physically and spiritually, in a sphere the Bible calls eternal destruction, perishing, or hell. This is what it means to be dead in transgressions and sins. This is what it means to be dead to God. This is hard news. But I pray by God's grace, it's going to yield joy by the time we finish with this passage. But this is what Paul says, we were dead to God. Do you remember what it was like before you came to know and want and love Jesus Christ? You may not remember. It's not crucial that you remember. Many of us can't remember when we came to Christ or the day or the moment or how we were too young. That's not important. What is important is that you are seeking to trust him now and depend on him now and love him now. But I do remember what it was like before I knew Jesus Christ. I I had formal religion. I went to church on Sundays, many Sundays. I, I had a sense that God was real, that Jesus was real. But in my actual life, I had no real hope at the center of my heart that he was mine and I was his. I had none. I didn't understand people who did, who'd like to sing songs about him or just seemed at peace with him. It just, I had no conception of what that really experientially would be. I had no sustained ability to follow him. I might come out of church one day wanting to be good, but wanting would go away, not just the doing. I could go through the motions. Sometimes I wanted to be a good guy, but I had no sustenance in that. I had no hope. He was not my treasure or my deep desire. In fact, I had a sense that I, if it wasn't for the anxiety and the pain of suffering in my life, I, I, I could be quite fine if things just went my way. If I could just get away from those things, I could be happy. Whether I had them or not was not as crucial as whether I could be really popular or well-off enough or respected by people I liked, Just, just happy. That's what I wanted. I, I, in fact, I even saw myself as a good person. Really, I, I mainly saw myself as a victim of what others had done to me. But then came this season in my life where over time, God revealed to me in his mercy and in his kindness, I was not just a victim. I was not just a sufferer. I had a dark heart. Very selfish heart. I was a sinner. And I was under his judgment for my sins. And ironically, as I was coming to see these horrible things, God was stepping in to open my eyes and my heart to what he did in response to my deadness. What he did for any who will call on him. And this is what he did. God made us alive. Together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands, this he set aside, nailing it to the cross. God made us alive. And I want to talk about that more at the end, but let's talk about how he did that. This is how God made us alive, having forgiven us all our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. Paul says, this is how you were made alive, folks. He forgave you all your trespasses. He canceled the record of debt. Do you know that without Christ, all people have a record of debt with legal demands against them? What in the world even is that? This is what Paul tells us. is in God's conception. A record of debt with legal demands. Don't think legal in some like petty neighborhood HOA sense. Like your bushes are too tall. We get the letter from the HOF every year. Your, pow- your siding needs washing. The HOA code violation 32B. Please, dis- please wash your siding fortwith. So we don't have to send you more. No, don't think petty stuff like that. Don't think traffic tickets. Don't even think the laws of municipal governments. Or state governments or federal governments think the ultimate law of goodness and love that almost everyone knows at least something of in their heart. Whether they know Christ or not, they know something of the goodness of this law of goodness in life. The law that says, treat others as you would have them treat you. The law that says, be grateful for what you have and don't grumble and complain The law that says, don't hate with your heart or call someone an idiot or worthless. The law that says, don't put your trust in money, for that's idolatry. Put your trust in God. The law that says, don't put your deepest hope in people, presidents, girlfriends, boyfriends, spouses, for that is idolatry. The law that tells husbands to be faithful to their wives and and look at other women with honor and purity and not with lust. The law that says, don't steal. At work by being lazy, fudging your timesheet or cheating on your taxes. The law that says, honor all people, rich or poor, black or white, don't show favoritism. The law that says, honor your mother and father and treat them with dignity and respect. The law that says, be grateful for your lives. And don't be embittered and covet what other people have that you don't. The law that sums up all these laws when it says, love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. That's the law. And do you know that God keeps a record of every sin and every transgression of all people? Romans 2 says that there is a day coming when he will render to each one it's okay, you can let it go. Thank you. Romans 2 says, there is a day coming when he will render to each one according to his works on a day when God judges the secrets of men by Christ Jesus. And, and listen, he says that law has legal demands. It, he says it's against us. Another translation says it's hostile to us. And and legal, again, it doesn't mean man-approved, California state judiciary. It it, it means it's lawful. Paul is saying it has merit. It has integrity. It will stand up in court. God's not some petty employee out to get his boss, going to the HR rep to get his boss fired. He's not some litigation-happy ambulance chaser. No, God's record against us, it has merit. It's lawful. He is right to be angry with us. He is just in his condemnation of us. Every day, we fail to image him as we should. We're his image bearers. We're supposed to tell the world who he is through our lives. And every day in what we fail to think or say or do, And every day in what we do, think. I just want to wait a second because I just feel this is really important. important that we understand this so that we can cherish the work he has done and so that we can care for our lost neighbors god isn't a nice grandpa who overlooks stuff no problem he is the god of holy love who keeps a record of debt against his holy law and who will repay everyone And because of this, the Bible says, through our sins, we deserve death, separation from God forever. That's what the law demands. That's what's demanded in this record of debt when Paul says it's legal demands. It demands your death, it demands your eternal separation from God lawfully. It's a real record of debt, of your and my sins. It exists in God's conception, which is the only conception that matters, and it is lawful. And do you know what God did to that record of debt against you? This is what God did. He canceled it. It's gone. It's all gone. It's all gone. He picked up your record of debt, this lawful certificate, recording all the loveless, selfish sins you have ever thought or said or done or ever will, Say or think or do, the ones you know about, the ones you don't know about, the ones in the past, the ones today, the ones still to come. He took them all and he ripped it up, he blotted it out, and he threw it away. It's gone, it's out of the way. Paul says, It's not in your way. Well, what way? The only way that matters. It is not between you and God anymore. It's gone. And it will never come back. It can never come back. And here's how we know it can never come back and it will never be resurrected. Because God did not just cancel it. Like I just tore it up and threw it away. If I took you to lunch and the waiter came with the bill and I said, don't worry, I got this. And I just took the bill in front of the waiter and I ripped it up and threw it away. And I said, "You're dead. is, f- go, go on your way. He would just be like, what did you just do? And the waiter would be like, what did you just do? And I said, canceled. That's not how God canceled your debt. That's not how he took it out of the way. No, Paul says he nailed it to the cross. He nailed it to the cross. My sin, oh, the bliss of this glorious thought. My sin, not in part, but the whole, it's nailed to the cross, and I bear it no more. (sighs) Praise the Lord. He nailed it to the cross. More literally, he placed your sin debt on a real person, Jesus Christ, and he nailed him to the cross. Instead of you. And there, Jesus Christ, the lover of your soul, took your record of debt upon himself. And he was nailed to the cross for you, because he loves you. And, brothers and sisters, once that debt was paid, That debt was paid. There's no debt left. Did God the Son not do his job? Was his blood not pure enough for what you owe? No, he nailed it to the cross. He cried out, it is finished. Not halfway there, living on a prayer. (laughs) No, he said, it's finished. It's done. And then God raised him from the dead to say to you, he's not paying anymore for this. Payment accepted. And listen, the one who pays your debt against God is God. I mean, going back to my goofy restaurant analogy, if the owner of the restaurant came out and said to you and me as we're eating lunch, this one's on the house. I got this. And then to boot, he takes out 50 bucks. (laughs) He puts it on top of the check on the house. Would you question it anymore? The owner of the restaurant? Paul says it this way in Romans 8. Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. It's not Moses, John the Baptist. It's not some good guy. It's God. He says, he elaborates, he deepens this. He says, who is to condemn? Listen, he says, who is going to condemn you? Jesus Christ is the one who died. He's the one who is condemned for you. There is no higher moral authority in the universe than God. And when God himself is the one who pays the price for our sin, we can be sure, we should be sure, that when he says that through the cross of God the Son, God the Father has canceled the record of our sins. He has taken it out of the way. We can be sure, we must, we should be sure that this complete and total annihilation of our sin record is lawful. It is legitimate. It has integrity as surely as God himself has integrity. Brothers and sisters, your sins, and God knows they are many, are forgiven you. The ones you know about. The ones you don't know about. The ones you're still battling. The ones you're ashamed of right now that you hope no one would ever see. The the ones you can't remember. The ones still to come. None of them existed 2,000 years ago when he did this work. Why should tomorrows be too hard for him? Paul says, no, he is forgiven. That's not the language. He says he's forgiven us all our trespasses. What freedom would it be to know that Jesus forgave your sins up until the last 10 seconds? And that tomorrow you're indebted again. And that record is just as lethal as it was before he forgave it before. That was my religion growing up. He forgave you today, but I don't know about tomorrow. That's not what Paul is saying here. That's empty. That empties the cross of its power and the blood of Jesus of its worth. He says, no, he has forgiven us all our trespasses. He nailed it to the cross. And the result, moving on here to the final point, who we are now, the result of this is that you're alive to God now. You had no relationship with him. You were dead to him. You had no state of peace but a state of war between the two of you. You had no fellowship with him. You had no friendship with him. He might have gleaned out to you with appeals. But you didn't run to him. Stay with him. You you weren't his child. Paul says that's over. That's over. That's as canceled as your sin debt is canceled He's changed all that. You are his child. You are his friend. You are his delight. You are his bride, the bride of his son. You are his inheritance. The Bible even calls you his precious possession. It says that you're chosen, holy, and dearly loved. If God longed to gather Jerusalem, rejecting him, hardened to the end, If he longed to gather them under his wings, how much more does he long to draw you close, who he's made now your children? And listen, this is what he has done. Paul says, he made us alive. This is not dependent on your work or your law keeping. That's the whole point of the cross. We can't keep the law as we should. We never could. And listen, We will grow and be better and better, but we will never on this side of eternity keep the law as we should. The brother of Jesus, the Apostle James says, including himself, we all stumble in many ways. God knows that. That's why it is he who made you alive, not you. A wounded person can heal, right? Uh, they might speed up their healing with good medicine and the right choice of a good doctor. Try getting a person who's died of a heart attack off the gurney. You will wait until you join them in death. So God says, "I made you alive, son, daughter. I made you alive." This is this is not based on your feelings. It's not based on your work. It's not, it's not based on your emotions. It's based on his blood. You, you have peace with him. If you, if you love, even imperfectly, I know it's all imperfect for all of us, but if you love Jesus, if you treasure him, if you want to follow him, if, you've, if you're depending on him to save you, not perfectly, but truly, you have peace with him whether you feel it or not. And often we don't feel it, right? You have peace. You're forgiven by him whether you feel it or not. And often we don't feel it, right? But our feelings are not to be the ultimate arbiter, the judge, the indicator of our forgiveness or our peace with God. Jesus is having become your sin, nailed to the cross. That's the ground, the evidence of your peace and your forgiveness with God. So Paul cries it out to this church that's confused. You're his now. He nailed this to the cross. He made you alive together with Christ. He made you alive. You're not dead anymore. You're united and bonded. Listen, he says he made you alive together with Christ. Let's think about that for a second. With Christ. You are not just alive. You are alive with Christ. You are united to God's son. He dies, you can die. If he can't die, you can't die. If he's favored by God, you're favored by God. If he disowns his son, he can disown you. He can't do any of that. You are united, bonded, forever, connected, spiritually one with his son, Jesus Christ. Just as much as the wave came from Adam's ocean, now our lives are placed in Jesus' ocean. God is forever your father because he is forever Jesus' father. There's an unbreakable bond between you and Jesus, and so there's an unbreakable bond between his father and your father. He's your father now just as much as he is Jesus' father. And and listen, we're almost done. You've been patient. But this is good stuff. I'm not ashamed of length today because this is good stuff. You've got to hang in there with me. Listen to this. Because God is your father now, this is crucial to see, and not your judge. The way that God views your ongoing struggles with sin has fundamentally changed. Think about that. Think about the best father you know. How does the best father you can imagine deal with? With his children's failures. The best father you can conceive of. How does he deal with his child's failures? Does he rail off? and? No. When you sin, God has compassion for you. Instead of condemnation. Listen, brothers and sisters. This is crucial. His desire for justice. In light of your sin. That's over. That was satisfied in his son's death on your behalf. Now his heart is only to help you instead of judge you. And sometimes that helping will involve discipline. A lot of times it, it will always involve treating you not the way your sins deserve. And a lot of times it will, it will include tons of restraint and patience, just like you would with your children if you're a good parent. But sometimes when he disciplines you, it can feel like, oh, God's punishing me. He's never punishing you in that sense of prison or exile or a a hangman's gallow, he did that in Jesus. He already punished his son. How could he honor that sacrifice and judge you anymore? He's not your judge anymore. He's your father. And because you're alive with Jesus, your relationship with sin has fundamentally changed. Because of Jesus, you're always, always with him. He's, he's always interceding for you at the Father's right hand so that you continue to walk with God. And you, when you fall down, you get up. And when you want to throw in the tower, he brings you back because he's always interceding for you. He's your brother who sympathetically understands everything you're going through way more than you can understand and has way more compassion for you than you give him credit for in all of your struggles. And he's always making a way to not just is he before the Father for you, he's always making a way for you to go to the Father through him day and night, 24-7. He's always with you in another way. He's with you through the Holy Spirit who lives inside you to lead you, to guide you to prompt you, to burden you, to speak to you, to give you power over your enemy, over all of them. And this is ours. All of this is because he canceled this debt, nailed it to the tree. It's gone. Everything else comes as a consequence of that purchase, that transaction on the cross. You can't be condemned any longer. You can only be accepted in Jesus, loved in Jesus, kept forever in Jesus because he has taken your judgment. Folks, at some point in the next few days, if not today, you're going to wake up or walk around with a sense of condemnation. And you have to think, Nailed to the cross. It's over. I'm still struggling. I want to beat this. Don't sell out to what your heart and your experience and your struggle is telling you. Nailed to the cross. At some point this week, you're going to feel unforgiven for something you did in the past or something you're you're still trying to Reconcile to God about in your subjective emotions. Nailed to the cross. At some point this week, you're going to feel like God is against you. You're going to feel estranged from him. Look at the record of debt that you owed God in its entirety. Nailed to the cross. You bear it no more. It's taken out of the way. So there's the help you need to turn back to God, the help you need to make a better go at repentance, the help you need to avoid it next time, the help you need to say no in the moment, the help you need to say sorry, it's all there because it's whatever was standing between you and God, it isn't any longer. So run to him. Run to him to be better, to grow, not to earn his love. Not to atone for yourself. Not to get saved, but because you are. If you're here this morning and you don't know Jesus Christ, I can only appeal to you based on the word of God. He says, if anyone would come to me and believe, by by, by come, he means believe. Put your faith in me. Acknowledge that you are a sinner. May God give you grace to see that and to say, I need you, Lord. I need your forgiveness. May God give you grace to see that. If you can do that this morning by his grace, he says, whoever comes to me, I will never turn them away. By no means will I turn them away. He invites you now to come to him. As Pam said, He loved hardened, hateful Jerusalem, longed for them. He longs for you if you're away from him today and you're not in him. To those of you who are in him, this is so strange that Rob would pick this song. You don't understand what that did this week to me as I was preparing this message and hearing, trying to preach to you guys about these promises, that God is really here among us, that his one spirit does work in the differing gifts and preaching these things. And then to have God say, I sure am here. At the break, I walked away to go upstairs. And at the break time, oftentimes, Josh will play some set list, some song list. We had just finished It Is Well in that verse, my sin, oh, the bliss of this glorious thought, my sin, not in part, but the whole, is nailed to the cross, and I bear it no more. Praise the Lord, praise the Lord, O oh my soul. And then we broke, and I went upstairs to get my sermon and met, meet a couple of people. And as I walked past the speakers, what did I hear? Maybe you heard it. My sin, oh the bliss of this glorious thought. My sin, not in part, but in whole, is nailed to the cross, and I bear it no more. It was coming out of the playlist that Josh didn't plan on playing. I mean, he didn't, let's get this song up. He just has a random song list and it was playing. The only time today when I could have heard during this service, a song outside of what Rob was playing was that song and that lyric. And I I, I can just, I can tell you about these signs, but what we need is the invisible Holy Spirit to work his invisible power. So if he's saying these things on the outside, I trust he's working on the inside.